second case now, Block versus Exterior Remodelers. Ms. Bird, you've reserved 10 minutes for rebuttal. You may proceed when you're ready. May it please the court and counsel. Fundamentally, workers' compensation is a social legislation. It's entirely a creature of statute, and it is comprehensive in its intent to govern all of the benefits and provide all of the terms and the uh, purpose behind workers' compensation laws in this state. Counsel, can you just put the microphone just there? Thank you, thank you. All right, do I have to do that over? Uh, workers' compensation and people who get injured at work are recognized to be different than cases where people are injured in personal injury cases. There has been a trade-off between an employee who gets injured at work in exchange for guaranteed rights that are limited in nature, in exchange for an efficient and direct delivery of those benefits. This court previously, in Frankie versus Fabcon, 1993, stated specifically, workers' compensation is a social legislation providing a measure of security to workers injured on the job, with the burden of that expense considered a proportional share of the expense of production. And in this case, the purpose of Chapter 1, Statute 176.179 is to provide a mechanism and a method for an employer who's overpaid an employee, but limit the right of that benefit recovery, but limit that right of recovery because those benefits were received in good faith by the employee. The legislature has recognized in this statute that they do not want to leave a worker without the ability to provide for themselves or their family. If we look directly at the language of Statute 176.179, we will see that the statute must apply to situations where stipulations have been vacated and an overpayment results. In addition to the four corners of the statute and the plain language that exists, 
this court has previously ruled that the statute 176.179 is applicable to all claims for credit asserted following its effective date, and that is still good law. I'd like to point specifically to the language contained in the statute at issue. Starting with the preamble, notwithstanding section 176.521 subdivision 3, which happens to be the statute that specifically allows the setting aside of settlement awards, that language is followed by, or any other provision of this chapter to the contrary, except as provided in this section. That language is exclusive. It states this statute is the sole means by reco for recovery of overpayments by employers. And if that language isn't enough, the next part of that sentence is no lump sum or weekly payment or settlement. It is explicitly laid out in the statute that settlements are contemplated as being part of this statute. At this point, we get to the idea of mistake. It's been the Workers' Compensation Court of Appeals and the, and the lower level that because there was no mistake found as a part of the reason for vacating the stipulation, that somehow the language contained in Chapter 176, 179, indicating that when payments are made under mistake of fact or law by the employer or insurer, that somehow this statute is not applicable. And that's wrong for a lot of reasons. The first one of which is what I just pointed out, that this is social legislation, this chapter is, is intended to be comprehensive, and if this statute does not apply to an overpayment in a case that we're talking about here today, then nothing applies. There's no guidance that would provide for recovery of an overpayment in a case such as this. And without any guidance, then the employer and insurer are stuck with not being able to recover at all. And I don't think that was the intent of the legislature in Council, passing this statute. Let's go, let's go back to the statute. I was following you avidly as you were working your way up to the, the, through the statute. But could you focus specifically on the phrase, in the event that it is subsequently determined that the payment was made under a mistake in fact or law by the employer or insurer? What do you think in the event means? And is there, um, is there anything in the statute that prohibits a credit when an award has been vacated for a change in condition rather than a mistake of fact or law? Well, yes. I, I mean, it's, it's clear to me that this statute is A, is in intended to be comprehensive, that it's intended to protect uh, ongoing benefits of an employee, especially those weekly benefits which have been carved out specifically. And if we decide that in cases where there is no mistake of fact or law for the purposes of determining uh, a vacation of an award under 176.461, which is a completely different standard, by the way, if there's no determination of the vacation of the award on that basis, but instead on one of the other four bases, uh, which include fraud or change, substantial change in condition or new facts and evidence, 
if one of those reasons is found, but not mistake of fact, then we're left with a disparate impact for similarly situated injured workers whose change in condition has been determined to, and the benefits that they got under their former stipulation have been determined to be not proportionate to the duration of their disability. So we've got one employee who, who because the, the vacation was due to change in condition, the statute doesn't apply. Well, let me make sure I understand your argument. You contend there was a mistake of fact here, right? Yes. Okay, no. let's yes. assume that there is no mistake of fact. Can your client still win or not? Well, yes, he'll win because then there's no recovery. There's there's no ability for the insurer under any statute for an overpayment to be collected. So your, your argument is if it's not a mistake of fact, then there, there's no authority to get a credit for the substantial change in condition. For the payment. The payments of, made. Correct. Correct. This has to be the only way. And so the mistake that occurred is actually a mistake, a unilateral mistake by the employer and insurer that occurred at the time the Court of Appeals decided to vacate the stipulation. So at that moment in time, that $40,000 payment became a mistake. And it was a mistake on behalf of the employer and insurer, which is specifically what's addressed in that portion of the statute you just mentioned, which is in the event that it is subsequently determined that the payment was made under mistake of factor in law by the employer or insurer. So we're talking about a mistake on their part, not a mistake that we analyze under 176.461 that the Court of Appeals has to analyze whether there was a mistake made at the time the stipulation was entered into. And that is different than what we're talking about So here. to put it another way, I understand your argument to be that even though the award is vacated, all amounts paid under the award are not vacated. That is, the employee gets to keep them. The employee, there's no provision for refund in, in the workers' compensation statute. So there will be no refund. However, they don't get to keep the money. They have to pay back the money, but they have to pay it back in this way, from benefits that they are owed well, in the, the future. I, I, the premise of my question is that is that the court, let's assume the court determines there's no mistake of factor law, which is what the WCCA determined. Your argument is employee still wins, employer is not entitled to a credit, right? Correct. Because there's no provision for a credit. So I take it your argument is even though the award is vacated, that doesn't, that doesn't return the parties to the position they were in before the award. Well, it gets a little bit complicated, but you're on the correct path. That is true, because it basically is, we are all taking a suspended reality point of view here, because the stipulation is vacated in 2016. The stipulation was entered into in 1992. The payment was made in 1992. There's been a lot of time that's passed in between these two things, yet the Court of Appeals, under guidance from the workers' compensation statute, which allows provisions to vacate these stipulations, which is, again, unlike the tort law, we go back in time to 1992. And in 1992, there is no stipulation, there is no closure of benefits to the employee, yet this payment was made. 
and there has to be some way for us to account for the fact that this payment was made and that it cannot be refunded. It, they cannot expect an employee to come up with $40,000 to repay. And so therefore, this is the mechanism by which this has to be done. And if I think if you look further down in the statute to mistaken compensation, there's also a reference to the fact that further payments made for the same injury for the mistaken compensation, that language is important to be read along the lines with the mistake of factor law. Because there's no doubt that this $40,000 that's out there right now is the mistaken compensation that we're talking about. And when read in context between those two things and the understanding that mistake of factor law can look back retroactively on that payment and make that payment a mistake. And I think that is the mistake of fact that was made by the insurer in this case that makes that section uh, applicable. One other question. The, the issue of whether the payments were made under a mistake of factor law was decided by the WCCA before it vaca vacated the award, right? Correct. Did your client have the opportunity to appeal that adverse determination on mistake of fact or law? They could have appealed it, but honestly, the stipulation was vacated for a different reason, and there wouldn't be a need to appeal that specific decision um, because what you really want to do is move things forward, which is go back to the trial court and have them make determinations about how these benefits are now going to be distributed. So it, it's, it's simply not necessary. And I think concentrating on... Well, in hindsight, doesn't it look kind of necessary? Because then the, the comp judge has to apply the WCCA's decision. There's no mistake of fact. The work comp decision the work comp judge and the WCCA are conflating two different things. Mistake of factor law under 176.461 is completely different in terms of what that means in the statute, 176.179. And the uh, comp judge... Can you judge, just explain that a little bit more? Yes. The compensation judge... Um, when making that determination was jumping over uh, a few steps in order to come up with what they thought was a, an equitable result and allow this credit for these benefits and came to this conclusion. However, the standard that applies for, for mistake under 176.461 is laid out very specifically in, in law and it's codified. And what needs to happen is the Court of Appeals needs to go back in time to the point at which the stipulation was entered into. And at that point in time, were either of the parties entering into that in, in a, as a mistake? Did somebody misunderstand what the other person had said? Was there a legal grounds to provide uh, a voiding of that contract? And that's the standard that is being looked at by the Court of Appeals. It's rather high. And if that isn't there, then they're not going to grant the vacation of the stipulation on those terms. Other things can occur for the vacation of stipulation, which is what happened in this case. The idea that 
176.179 is applying that same, uh, that same standard of mistake cannot be true because they're applying two different sets of facts. So what's the, what is the mistake here then? The mistake is the payment that the, insu that the insurer paid in 1992 for no reason. So basically, any, any vacation is a mistake of fact. Correct. That's exactly it. And it's a mistake because the Court of Appeals made that determination. The counsel, is there any authority for that proposition? That just strikes me as um, unusual that any vacation is automatically a mistake of fact. Is that what I heard you say? Yes. Yeah, it, it, it must be so because... Because the, it was paid mistakenly. Yes, because the point of the vacated stipulation is to take away, take away that bargain. And so the employer is not getting anything for their bargain anymore because the stipulation to close out certain benefits no longer exists. And if there is no contract to close out benefits then that $40,000 was paid as a mistake for no reason. And do we determine when the mistake is at the time of the payment? The, correct. The mistake is at the time of the payment. So in 1992, when the employer's insurer made that payment, it was, it, it was mistaken at the time? It was mistaken at the time because of the Court of Appeals in 2016. So at the time, it was not a mistake. So it wasn't a mistake up until the time the Court of Appeals determined that there was a substantial change in condition? Correct. And So it was, wasn't a mistake, and then it became a mistake retroactively? Yes. Interesting theory. Um, well, it, 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 it works, and let me tell you how. Before you do that, what happened to the money? The, the money went to my client, and he presumably, over the next 17 or 18 years, used it to subsist because portion... The employer didn't get the money back, is my point. No, they would be getting it back now if they were paying benefits, but no. So did the employee spend it mistakenly? If it was paid mistakenly in hindsight, did the employee retroactively spend it mistakenly? Well, yes, because it would have been money that he should not have had. So. But your position is he sh there shouldn't be a credit against that money that he shouldn't have had. Cor cor correct. We are not making the argument that the employee doesn't have to pay this money back. He has to pay this money back. It it's, wasn't his to take. It happened, but, but he has to pay it back. But he only has to pay it back 20% at a time but under the statute. he has to pay it back under the statute because the legislature has determined that this is the manner in which it is most fair to all parties to allow this repayment to occur. And I'd like to uh, get to an, another point that um, I think is important, which is this idea of suspended reality, that we, in 2016, are all of a sudden returning back to 1992, uh, and that the parties are, quote, as Flanagan in this case said, the parties are in the same position that they were at the time that before they entered into the stipulation. Well, that can only be half true because the stipulation has gone away, but we do have to deal with this $40,000 payment. One of the things that 
I think, supports the position that the status quo ante uh, applies here is, uh, a is the case law that we have um, that requires that where settlements must, this is from Frankie versus Fabcon or Monson versus Wiper Mitsubishi, where settlements must conform to the law at the time of the settlement of the workers' compensation claim. The law at the time of the settlement applies for purposes of reopening awards. So in 2016, when the Work Comp Court of Appeals is contemplating the vacation of the stipulation, they have to go back in time to 1992 and look at what the law was at that time to determine under that timeline's set of laws and under that statute applicable at that time so that we can hold all the parties to the standard of what was going on during that sliver of time. And that is why we all must take this position of suspended reality and put ourselves back in 1992. And in 1992, April 1992, the stipulation was signed in May. April of 1992, we had no stipulation. There was no payment made. And there were benefits that were due and owing at that time. So now we have to figure out what benefits were due and owing at that time that would account for some of the $40,000 that was paid. And then the remaining $40,000 that was paid uh, mistakenly needs to be captured in the statute that exists at the time that the stipulation was entered into. And that is why we are looking at Minnesota Statute 176-179-1988 version because that's the statute that is in effect at the time the stipulation was entered into. The application of this position of the uh, respondent and of the Court of Appeals that somehow this statute doesn't apply is, is impractical. Because if you apply the statute the way that, or rather not apply the statute, and simply allow this credit to occur, what's happening is the, we've got a case where an a injured worker his situation has changed so significantly that the Court of Appeals has made specific findings in front of a three-judge panel to determine that the benefits that he's received so far are not proportionate to the duration of his disability. And take away that stipulation, which they have found to be inadequate for covering his needs at that time. So therefore, giving him the ability to continue to receive ongoing benefits as a result of their decision. Yet, we are now faced with the, with the other side saying, we're just going to take all those benefits away. So we're allowing you to get benefits and open your claim back up again and provide you with wage loss benefits and medical treatment and everything that's due under the compensation laws. Yet, we're not going to actually let you have any of that until you fully exhaust your benefits that were paid to you previously under stipulation. That is not a result that the legislature would have intended to have an injured worker 
suffer not be able to pay any of his bills, even though the Court of Appeals has recognized that their position and situation so has counsel, changed. So, counsel, the award's been vacated, and then presumably there would be a new award, right? At least your client would want a new award. I'm not following your question. Well, you, your client filed a motion to vacate the award. Correct. A petition to vacate the award, which was granted, and then filed a new claim petition. Correct. The new claim petition claims benefits from 1992 to the present and into the future, right? He could claim those benefits, but the claim petition only claims a very specific set of benefits from 2009 and 2010. He could claim benefits if he had them to claim, but in fact, he didn't have wage loss during that time. The wage loss that he had was a result of two surgeries that he had in 2009 and 2010. So those were the benefits that he claimed. So can I just clarify quickly and then, so he, so there's actually two awards prior to 92, one where he got an award and that's not an issue here. So he still has that money. And then there was the settlement for $40,000. So there's actually, he recovered more than $40,000, correct? Yes. Okay. Uh, but and, but the, the first part is not at issue in this case. So the stuff from the 80, late 80s, He's already been paid and there's no contest about that. Correct. Okay. Uh, but to that point, I guess I just want to clarify any misunderstanding. The benefits from that previous stipulation, it was a two-date, it was called two-date stipulation, which basic, which only pays benefits that are due previous to that date. So that really isn't part of this at all because he was owed benefits at that time regardless. So. I thought I read some worker compensation court of appeals cases that said once you vacate the stipulation, they don't presume that benefits are owed. That's true. That's why it does go, it moves on to um, the work comp judge who makes a determination of the entitlement of those benefits um, and the continuing causal relation of those benefits, permanency, if it's an accurate reading, yes. The vacated stipulation, what the Court of Appeals is doing is making those benefits available to the employee. But this decision would take them away. The judge would, the judge would then presumably say, now they're available and you are owed them, but you can't get them. So just to clarify, this is just for wage loss, not, not for the surgeries in 2009 and 10, the, not for the medical bills? Correct. The, the stipulation uh, reserved medical treatment into the future, and so it's my understanding that that's and, and your client has gotten the money for those bills? I, or will eventually? Yeah, presume? I don't know the answer to that okay. specifically, but yes. At this point, I have 20 seconds left. I'd like to just reserve my time um, on rebuttal unless there's any other specific questions. Thank you, counsel. You have 10 minutes for rebuttal. Mr. Ostergren. Please the court, counsel. Patrick Ostergan on behalf of the employer uh, Exterior Remodelers and its insurer Citizens Security Mutual. Uh, I'm here to ask that you affirm the WCCA in uh, affirming the trial court in the case that the 1992 settlement was not a mistake of fact or law. And because of that, the statute 176.179, which deals 
exclusively with mistaken compensation does not apply and my client is entitled to a full credit for the monies it paid dollar for dollar. Uh, that statute uh, exists to avoid refunds or, uh, refunds from the employee back to the employer, not to deprive uh, settlements that have been uh, vacated to remain in the hand, that money to remain in the hands of the employee. Uh, the issue of whether, this case is about mistake. The issue of whether there was a mistake as part of this 1992 stipulation has been litigated four times. First, as you pointed out earlier, the employee's petition to vacate the stipulation in the first place was brought for two grounds. Number one, substantial change in medical condition. The WCCA agreed and granted that and vacated it for that reason. The other reason the employee sought to vacate the 1992 stipulation was for mutual mistake of fact. The court specifically rejected that argument and made findings to that, to that uh, point. And counsel, at that point, could the employee have appealed that determination? I mean, the employee won, got the award vacated. Could the employee appeal the, the adverse other holding? In retrospect, if they knew that I would be standing here a year later arguing that the fact that the court said it wasn't a mistake, uh, absolutely they should have and did not and had the right to appeal that. So you can appeal from the WCCA to this court a, a, a holding even though the employee gets the relief that had been sought? Well, there are some cases. Munson uh, is briefed. Uh, that's a case, and, and there's another case as well, where um, the, the Supreme Court has been asked to look back again at uh, a vacated stipulation for settlement. Uh, I think in this case, if we look at the statute in order to how we get the money back or how you don't get the money back, that would be certainly something that you would look at, I would think, because if, it, if this statute is controlling, you need the mistake, and they needed to get the mistake in there. Otherwise, they don't get to keep the money. The second time. Counsel, before you move on, help, help me with something. I'm still a little confused now. What I thought I heard Ms. Bird say is that there is a difference between mistake of fact under 176.179 and mistake as it relates to the motion to vacate under 176.461. And maybe on rebuttal, if I got her wrong on that, she'll correct me. But do you see that distinction or what's that? No. And if you look at page 14 of the employee's brief, the bottom paragraph, this is what the employee argues. Mistake of fact as a basis for vacating a stipulation is different than mistake of fact in determining whether to allow a credit. This is the important sentence. The mistake of fact referred to in vacating a stipulation necessarily has a relationship to the employee's mistake. The mistake of fact referred to in vacating has a relationship to the employee's mistake. Well, that's, that's an incorrect statement of the law requires a mutual mistake of fact. Both parties have had to have had a mistake here. Uh, my client doesn't think it was a mistake to settle the so, case. So when you say, and I want you to continue with that, that this issue of mistake has been 
dealt with at least four times, it's a mutual mistake because I think she was saying, Ms. Bird was somehow indicating that, yeah, there was a mistake, but it was your mistake. It was the employer's mistake. We don't believe we made a mistake. We didn't ask for the case to be vacated and for the deal to be undone. The employee did. But a mistake of fact is required both to vacate the settlement and to vacate or and to get uh, to apply that credit statute. The second time the court, uh, a court dealt with mistake was the trial court in this case. So the compensation judge, she determined that when an employer and an insurer make a voluntary settlement to an employee, which is received in good faith as part of a stipulated agreement between the parties, the payment was voluntary and it was not made under a mistake of fact. Fi uh, finally, uh, the employee argues again at the WCCA, which is the case that you have before you and have been requested to overturn, uh, said there to the WCCA um, there had been a mistake, thus that we can avail ourselves of the overpayment statute. Uh, the court was very clear in this decision, and this is the key, and this is the WCCA. In 1992, the parties entered into a good faith agreement that was deemed fair, reasonable, and in conformity with the Act, the Workers' Compensation Act. The terms of the agreement were negotiated. A sum of money proportionate to the degree and duration of the employee's injury was offered, and I would add a caveat, and a degree of, of, uh, of, of money or an amount of money that the insurer believed was appropriate considering their risk. The agreement was executed by all parties and an award issued. And of course, in workers' compensation cases, you're not done when you fill out the release. You have to get the judge to approve it, as an uh, experienced judge. Quote, in these circumstances, it cannot be said that the payment was made under a mistake of fact. The employer and insurer had an obligation to make payment within the statutorily mandated time frames. Now, for a fourth time today, the employee asks that you determine that the 1992 agreement was a mistake. Why is mistake so important? Because the statute on the date of injury applies only to mistakes and mistaken compensation. Only mistaken compensation can be refunded through the operation of the limitations in 176.179. A vacated settlement places the parties in the same position they were before the deal. The, employee has defense, or the, the employer has defenses to the employee's claims, and they have money, $40,000. The employee has claims and the burden of proof for the new claims. Counsel, let's say you're right, that there was no mistake here by the employer um, under either 461 or 179. Um, then what is the statutory mechanism for this refund or credit? Because when you look at 461, it says the award is to be set aside, but it doesn't say what, what is to happen with money that's already been paid. That's the Christensen case. And it's briefed by both parties. In that case, bituminous insurance overpaid benefits by mistake. At the time... That, yeah, but that, we, we don't have a mistake here. Well, but it gets According better. to your argument. It gets better, though. At the time, at that time of that case, Christensen, there was no statute to allow the insurer to get their money back. And that was the exact issue raised in Christensen. Christensen held that the employer and insurer get a credit in the absence of the statute. 
we get the $40,000 back. And that goes back to my, my point that I want to make. If you undo a deal, in this case, you're only undoing one part of the deal. You're undoing the employee's part, but you're not undoing the insurer's part. Do you, do you agree the statute, the workers' comp statutes don't speak specifically about what is to happen to money that has been paid when a settlement is vacated for a substantial change in condition? No, but the cases do. I would agree that. But Christensen was a case of mistaken compensation before the mistaken comp statute was an amended. The, yes, but it held, they're all mistaken compensation cases. That's right. one but, of my points. But by your argument, we don't have mistaken compensation here. We have unmis unmistakable co compensation. Right, but Christensen holds beyond that. Christensen holds for the black letter law here that a insurer gets a credit in the absence of any statute. You just get a credit because you're undoing a deal. And if the employee gets their way, you're only undoing one part of the deal, one half of the deal. This is essentially a relitigation of the WCCA decision vacating the stipulation in the first place. They want that mistake effect. They gotta have it. Now, employees shouldn't take vacating a stipulation lightly because what are the implications of your decision today? Imagine the implications of your decision to limit the recovery of the insurer's credit in this case. Settlements are encouraged. This court encourages settlements. The WCCA encourages settlements. We don't encourage vacating settlements, particularly in work comp cases where both parties are represented by competent counsel, the compensation judge approves the deal. Uh, if this court was to hold that insurers are not entitled to a full credit for the payment they make, there would be no consequence to the employee for vacating a stipulation. And in almost every case, you would encourage the employee to vacate the stipulation because they're going to be overpaid. It is almost impossible for the employee to not be overpaid if you don't give the insurer the full credit. And if you give the employee what they want in this case, in that scenario, what insurance company? Overpaid if there's a settlement. The downstream effect might be to encourage employers and insurance carriers to litigate as opposed to settling, right? Isn't that what you're, isn't, isn't that sort of the tertiary second effect here? I suppose, but we want to, we want to encourage settlements. I understand that. I, I understand the public policy, but my, my point is that if, if we, were to agree with opposing counsel, one of the downstream effects conceivably could be employers and insurers would be encouraged to litigate to conclusion where you then have a judgment you can rely on as opposed to a settlement. Am I right or wrong about that? I think that would be one of the consequences, and I think that's a consequence. I don't think that's something that you want to encourage. Uh, no insurer would enter into a settlement where if it gets vacated, they don't get a credit for what they paid. Is it implicit in this statute, 176.179, that a credit is available, except in the event of a mistake of law or fact, it's only available under certain circumstances? I mean, isn't that a fair reading of this statute? Maybe that's more a question for the, the uh, employee's counsel, but. I, I think that's the reading of Christensen, is that the employer has the right, and Kasem. Kasem is also another case that stands for the proposition that you get a hundred percent dollar for dollar credit. Uh, and did both of those cases come before this statute was enacted? 
at least Christensen was. Christensen was before and Kasem was after. But so the legislature was working against the background that this court had said a credit is available. And then they had adopted this statute dealing with mistake of fact and law. Right, and it was, it was worded differently then, but so there was this argument a long time ago that there wouldn't be a credit. You wouldn't get a credit for this money, but, but they passed the statute, and before that was active, Christensen said, yeah, you get a credit for the money that you paid because, as Flanagan says, you're put back in the same position you were before. So when an employee vacates a stipulation for settlement, his relief should not be overpayment. His relief is the ability to relitigate his claims because they're open now and expand his claims if appropriate while recognizing that he has the burden to prove entitlement to the money that he's already been paid and any new money that he wants. If you undo a deal, you, can, you can't only undo one part of it. So that brings us to the cases, um, which I think the most important cases. What do they all have in common where they apply the statute? Every one of them has in common mistake and compensation. Uh, usually in the form of an overpayment where the insurer overpaid benefits, so they forget to stop benefits, or benefits are re, you know, they were paying wage loss and now they're gonna pay permanent total and oops, we overpaid. That's what these cases, most of these cases are about. Uh, and that's where you have a clear mistake by the insurer and their attempt to get the money back. And so you use the statute to figure that out. In the present case, it's an entirely different scenario. We have a good faith settlement with competent counsel, parties considering the risks, the compensation judge signs off. By limiting the insurer's recovery to this money that they paid, and again, we're not asking for the money, but we're not asking the employee to write a check. We simply want a dollar for dollar credit for what we paid because he's got new claims. He could have kept the money and not subjected it to this credit. He didn't have to uh, try to vacate the stipulation. My client opposed vacating the stipulation because we believed it was a good deal. In any settlement, the insurer likely pays more money than they might have owed to settle the case. And certainly that's clear to the naked eye here because when the employee settled this case in 1992, as the facts say in the facts sections of your brief, he went on to a career that paid him more than he made before, and he did not have any treatment or wage loss between 1992 and 2009, when he then has this subsequent surgery, uh, and then has, and which was paid. Because keep in mind, medical was left open in this case. We're only talking about wage loss that was closed for the $40,000 deal. So we're not asking for the full him to write us a check for $40,000. That's why they passed the statute in the first place so that employees don't have to write a check for $40,000 they don't have because they spent it 17 years ago. But if you give the employee, if, if you vacate his stipulation uh, and you limit the insurer's credit, the employee will undoubtedly, as a matter of fact, get more than he is entitled to. Because we can't get our money back 20% at a time. If you give the employer a full credit for the $40,000 it paid against the employee's claims, the employee will then only get everything he is entitled to under the statute. That's a very important distinction.
if you don't give my client the credit, he'll get paid more. If you give us the credit, he'll be paid exactly what he is entitled to, dollar for dollar. It's the only way to ensure a, a just outcome. There is... The result here is driven by the statute, and that might or might not be a just outcome. I mean, it's, we, we look to the statute in terms of whether or not you're entitled to retain that credit. I mean, I understand your policy argument that you're making, but, but it's the statutory language that drives the result here. I don't see a downside for the employee if you provide a 100% dollar-for-dollar credit to the insurer. He litigates his claims, he keeps the $40,000, and the 2009 and 2010 benefits he's seeking in the claim petition, they're like 25 weeks doesn't even come close to $40,000. Again, he doesn't have any wage loss between the day he settled and 2009. And at that point, he's got 20 some odd weeks. Work comp is the only area of the law that you have to be a little adept at math, unfortunately, for many of us that went to law school. Math is not the, the deal. Uh, but you don't have to be a math wizard to figure out that we overpaid and that his claims right now are less than $40,000. It's 20-some weeks of $200. To his, wage, his wage, average weekly wage is 220 bucks. Does the last sentence of this of 176.179 that says a credit may not be applied against medical expenses due or payable tell us anything about whether credits are due in general? I mean, would the legislature have to say that if credits weren't available? Well, I think that, so I think that's the legislature's, you know, you don't want to, if the only way that someone would get their surgery, emergency surgery paid for. I get the policy argument, but I'm wondering if that tells us anything about whether credits are available in general except in these specific circumstances laid out in the statute. Like why would the legislature have to say there's no credit for medical if there was a, if their pre-existing wasn't a credit for medical? Doesn't that tell us there, there is a credit for everything unless the legislature says there's not? Well, I think Christensen deals with that. I, I don't. I don't attribute that to what. To, to what. I, I think that's more of a emergency medical thing. That's why I think that's there. I don't think that 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 tells me that you don't get a credit at all unless it's a mistake. Um, there's one other option for you. N number one is to say we get the full credit, um, and the statute doesn't apply. Number two. You say the statute does apply, but you still get 100% credit because it's future lump sum benefit entitlement. Because the statute doesn't say it today. They took out, in 1995, they took out the future lump, they, they took out the part where you get a full credit, okay? In 95, they took out the part that says may be taken as a full credit. They took it out. And so now you can only get a partial credit for mistaken compensation. But the one that we're applying is the 90, is the 80, is the 88 statute, and that does have taken as a full credit in, and it applies to future lump sum benefit entitlement. So even if you say the statute applies, we still get 100% dollar for dollar credit because it's a full credit of future lump sum benefit entitlement. The only way that we can pay the employee for what he's asking for in 2009 and 2010 is to give him a lump sum, right? We can't pay it weekly because it's not ongoing stream of income. 
So it's lump sum and we, we still get a credit. The third way is you say, well, no, it's not that either. You only get to take it 20% at a time. That's where these cases come in. Kasem and Wagner, two cases that dealt with what do we do with overpayments. In Kasem, this court, the Supreme Court held that uh, the insurer was entitled to a 100% dollar-for-dollar credit for mistaken compensation because the benefits were already accrued. They were past due and they could only be paid as a lump sum. Wagner, which is a WCCA case, says the employee only gets, um, the insurer only gets the credit minus, you know, minus 20% at a time. But the difference between Wagner and Kasem Kasem, again, is paying it as a lump sum, and Wagner is weekly benefits, weekly income. That's the whole point of the 20%. We can't deprive an employee uh, by not giving him his paychecks if he's living on these benefits. Here in our case, this case, today, he's not living on these benefits. He already spent them, uh, and we have the credit. In Wagner, that person that got the 20% deduction was living paycheck to paycheck on these on these. Uh, payment that was income to them and thus um, we have that saving provision in the statute so you know finally the, the issue of of the mistake um, it, you know if I was to point if you were to ask me to point to to East Germany in 1989, and we'd take out a map, and I'd look, and I'd say, well, that's East Germany. And then you'd take the new map out today, and you say, well, point to East Germany. Well, I can't do it. Was that a mistake? Did I make a mistake back then? No, I didn't make a mistake. Uh, that's what we have here. The insurer doesn't think there was any mistake, ever. How can we have mutual mistake effect, and how can we have any mistake? If you look at the cases about mistake, We've got a couple of them. Munson. Munson is a, uh, a case where you decided that the WCCA should have um, said the case was a mistake. And so what is the difference between our case and this case? Well, in our case, of course, we have 17 years of no treatment and no wage loss between the settlement and the 2009. In Munson, it's 20 months. All along in Munson, the treating doctor kept saying, there's nothing wrong with you. Your MRI looks good. You got bone healing around your fusion. Everything looks good. And they settled under that premise. Five times the treating doctor took an x-ray, MRI, whatever, and said, yep, you're healing. You have a healed bone. Everybody thought that was a solid fusion. Let's settle. Paid him a bunch of money. After the settlement, and in that case, medical was closed, remember, and in this case, medical's open, so I think that makes a difference. But after 20 months, only 20 months after that settlement in Munson, somebody else looks at that x-ray and says, no, that's not, that's not healed. There's clear lucencies. So it was a mistake that everybody thought that should have, you know, should have known. The doctors had misread that's the kind of mistake you're, we're talking about. That's the kind of mistake you sent it back to the, the CCA. So, Counselor, you're saying just because you can't anticipate something doesn't mean that there's a mistake. Right. And we were right, weren't we, for 17 years in this case. But in, in these cases that talk about mistake that they've cited to you saying, I think, this, I think that this case block is a mistake because it's like Munson. No, 
Munson is a totally different deal. We've got an x-ray that was read one way and was read incorrectly, and we settled because of this healing, and it's not healed. That's a mistake, that you sent it back, not this. I think that's it. Thank you, Council. Uh, Ms. Bird, you have 10 minutes for rebuttal. Thank you. Uh, I'd like to just get right into it here. Um, we are not trying to relitigate re the WCCA decision on the mistake in this case. Uh, by bringing up Munson, it appears by opposing counsel, appears that, that somehow we're talking about that. And that is the whole point. We are not talking about whether or not the Workers' Compensation Court of Appeals found a mistake under 176.461 because we have a different mistake in this case. And the court, when they analyzed this case in 2016, they looked at mutual mistake of fact at the time of entering into the stipulation. And in this case, the statute only requires the unilateral mistake on behalf of the payment by the employer and insurer. And it says it in, that, in this statute. Counsel, the I understand your position. Would you agree that under 179 and 461, there at least needs to be a mistake by the employer? Well, in 1992, the actual law at the time was a unilateral mistake. It did not require a mutual mistake. So no, it could have been just a mistake by the employee. Um, but I don't want to confuse that issue here. Um, I think that, because I don't think that's true in this case. There didn't need to be a mistake, a mistake by the employer under the first instance in order to be a mistake by the employer under the second instance. Well, under 461 as it existed um, as of 1992, um, what mistake was required? By the employer, the employee, or mutual? Unilateral. By either one? By either one. And, and is it your position that in 1992 the employee made a mistake? Yes, yes. I mean, okay. he claims that his, his condition had completely healed at that time, and he was, was um, under the impression that he was doing well and was going to continue for the remainder of his life, yes. I think it's important to point out a few different things um, that were brought up just recently. The Christians, well, I'm going to go back to 1974. 1974 was when this statute was, first came into existence. And the portion of the statute that was in existence at that time is only the first section of the statute that ends with uh, no payment shall be refunded to the paying by uh, no payment shall be refunded by the paying employer or an insurer in the event in the event that it is subsequently determined that payments made under mistake of fact there was no provision for a credit in 1974 
this statute has progressed and that language changed in 1979, which allowed the credit to occur, recognizing that payments received in good faith by an employee, but also paid in good faith by an employer, could be recovered, but they had to be recovered pursuant to the statutory formula. So in 1974, it, it stopped after employer insurer before when the payments had been made to a person? Mm -hmm. Correct. So why would the legislature pass that law if credits weren't available in general? I mean, they, would, they wouldn't have to say there is no credit because credit in, in general. The point of that statute was that there shall be no refund. That's, or no refund, right. Yes, that's the point of that statute. You're not, if you paid something to the employee and they received it in good faith, that was the, the point. If this employee received their money in good faith. Well, but it's in good faith in the event there's a mistake of fact or law. So if there's not a mistake of fact or law, doesn't that tell us that they do get the refund? Or why would the legislature have to pass the law to begin with? They passed the law to protect employers from trying to collect money from employees that was paid to them in good faith. If the employer, we have all kinds of scenarios here as we sit here today that analyze this, this ability to collect an overpayment. Lots of times those overpayments are made pursuant to the law at the time. Uh, in, in Wagner, which is the case that opposing counsel brought up, it's a work comp court of appeals case, but in that case, payments were made um, appropriately. The problem was is that the employee became permanently and totally disabled, so benefits that had previously been paid as temporary total disability changed, became permanent total disability, and under laws of workers' compensation, um, they're allowed to offset Social Security, so now all of a sudden they've paid more than they should have. But all of those benefits were paid appropriately and according to the law. And the insurer in that case argued the statute didn't apply because there was no mistake. They said, we paid those benefits appropriately, so this can't apply. And the Court of Appeals said in that case, but for this statute, all overpayments would be considered a prepayment of future benefits. And it is in cases exactly like this that we're going to apply the statute and limit the ability of this credit to occur. The court in Christensen did apply statute 176.179, the 1979 version. So they were following the statute at that time. That statute changed over time. The statute in 1988 basically codified the decision in Christensen by allowing this lump sum award to occur, which is what Christensen determined lump sum awards were allowed when paying permanent partial disability. And that was the issue specifically in that case. However, the Kasem case that was before this court, that case applied the 1988 statute. However, it should be noted that that case was taken by this court to determine a constellation of very complicated workers' compensation benefits being uh, uh, um, awarded in that case. And the first six or seven pages of that decision don't mention an overpayment at all. They didn't take that case for overpayment. They didn't take that case to apply the statute. It's the last paragraph in that decision where they have to apply the statute because their decision resulted in an overpayment on the one hand and an underpayment on the other. And as a result, 
the court in that case decided, well, you know, it's fair enough in this case just to allow them to offset one another since we kind of created this mess. So they allow this 100% credit. That case, however, is important to point out that the benefits that were allowed to be taken as a lump sum were prior wage loss benefits, but the court specifically stated, we are not going to allow those to be determined to be lump sum benefits simply because they occurred in the past. We're not gonna allow this offset since they continue to be wage loss benefits that would not be allowed to have a lump sum. We're not gonna go down that path. They provide a lump sum recovery in that case because of the nature of this overpayment and underpayment. And that's the reason why, not because they're past due benefits and can be quantified. The benefits that were received by, at the time of the stipulation, were received in good faith. They were paid in good faith. There's not going to be an enormous increase in the attempts by injured workers to vacate their stipulations. Generally speaking, they, they want finalization of their settlement, of their claims, and they, they don't want to have to they imagine that things are gonna become bad enough that they need to vacate their stipulations. And vacating a stipulation is, is not easy to do. You don't just push a button and then say, hey, I want a redo. You have to go to the Court of Appeals and you have to substantiate in very strict terms the ability to vacate your stipulation and show why the benefits that you've received today and the stipulation is now unfair in terms of your duration and proportion to your disability that's continued to exist despite the parties wishing and hoping at that time of stipulation that it was a good deal. And the idea that there was no mistake in payment, that the insurer to this day doesn't think that it's a mistake in payment, um, is hard to comprehend because the fact of the matter is, is that they are no longer getting the benefit of that bargain. They paid $40,000 in exchange to close that claim so that they didn't have to do this anymore. But guess what? They're doing this again, and they don't have that $40,000. That $40,000 is the mistake that is involved in this case and the reason why the statute should be applied to the overpayment of this vacation of the vacated stipulation. I just have my summary. Um, in summary, we are asking that you reverse the lower courts and reaffirm your previous decision in Christensen that 176.179 applies to all claims for credit, including overpayments that result from vacated stipulations, and that the weekly benefits be afforded the treatment desired by the legislature and allow only a partial credit. Additionally, we uh, would ask that you remand to the trial court for additional fact-finding specifically on the calculation of the amount of benefits owed at the time of the 1992 stipulation, mainly that there was additional permanency and 37 weeks of wage loss that were due in 1992, and apply the remaining credit to the weekly benefits due in 2009 and 2010, and finally, determine that the nature of the additional 15% that's being claimed um, as PPD 
whether or not that's a lump sum for purposes of a full credit or a weekly uh, economic recovery benefit such that it will be paid out weekly and subject to a partial credit. Thank you. Thank you, counsel. Thanks to both counsel for the help you provided to the court in this matter. This case is submitted. We'll issue an opinion in due course. We're in recess.